for studying the book of 1 Corinthians together. A series entitled Christian Living in a Pagan World, just in case anybody's interested. And if you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now. Just wave and get their attention. They'll get a Bible into your hands. And then please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord today. No book like it in the whole world. God wants everyone to own his book and read his book and be transformed by it. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. Before we read it, if we were to announce to the whole world that the great apostle Paul was going to be the main speaker at a pastor's conference, pastor's leaders, Christian workers conference. I suppose that if that announcement were made, there wouldn't be a building in the world that would be big enough to accommodate the crowd that would come to that conference to hear what he might say to our hearts. And yet, these first five verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he does that very thing for us in this letter to the Corinthians. Let a man so consider us, Paul said, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I know nothing against myself, yet I'm not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, George, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes who will bring both, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. Let's pray together. Lord, we think of those members of our fellowship that are serving you and serving your servants at the mission conference in Austria. And as all of that begins today, we ask that you would anoint them, Lord, strengthen them. We pray that you would give them your eyes and your ears and your hands and your feet to serve the servants of the Lord. And it's always an honor to serve the servants of the Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would bless them, bless that conference, Lord, bless the worship leaders, bless the teachers. May your spirit fall mightily upon them all week long, Lord. All we need to sustain us is to hear your voice by your Holy Spirit. And so we pray for them to hear your voice and in their individual lives this week. Bless everyone who makes beds or puts the coffee together, does the sound, everything about that conference. And, Lord, we continue to pray for the Mount Hermon Conference coming up, for those that serve you in northern and central California. And we ask for that same blessing upon that conference, Lord. We need your blessing. We need your vision. We need to hear your voice, Lord. We need to know what's on your heart. And we ask that that time would be a time of great revelation by your Holy Spirit and transformation on each of our lives. And Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to open up your word 
and to do so in the company of your Holy Spirit, the author of it. And we pray, Lord, even as we've worshipped you in song and enjoyed ourselves so much so far, we pray, Lord, that all of that would just continue as we not only learn your word, but as we just say thank you in our heart as we learn it and as we study it and as we submit to it, Lord, and as we claim it and as in the course of studying it. And so just bless us in our relationship with you as we study your word now and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In this section of First Corinthians, the Apostle Paul has been instructing the church at Corinth concerning the importance of Christian service, how it is that every single one of us as Christians, how that we have been called to some calling, and as a part of that calling, we've been gifted by God for the expansion of the kingdom of God in this world. There are two kingdoms in this world. There's a kingdom of darkness and there's the kingdom of light. The kingdom of the God of this age, that is the devil, and then there is God's kingdom. And God has called each one of us as Christians to, in some way, to be a part of our service to him that allows for the advancement of the kingdom of God at the expense of the kingdom of darkness. And then also a calling upon our lives to strengthen the kingdom of God and those that make up the kingdom of God, God's people. That's a calling on each and every one of our lives as Christians. The word Christian means Christ-like, and it's impossible to be like Christ, to be a true Christian, and to not be engaged in Christian service because Jesus came into the world not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Paul has been teaching us that one day as Christians... Each of us were going to stand before the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat of Christ, not to answer for our sin. Aren't you glad we're never going to have to answer for our sin again as Christians? The price has been paid for it to be washed away, forgiven, separated from us as far as the east is from the west. But we will stand before Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat of Christ that's known as the reward seat in which our service to the Lord is going to be tested, and then it's going to be rewarded. And in these first five verses of chapter 4, we have one of the great autobiographical statements of the Apostle Paul concerning service, where he speaks to us uh, from his own heart about how he viewed his ministry and ministry in general. We think about how valuable Uh, These autobiographical statements of Paul are by the Spirit of God throughout the Scriptures. There's so much we wouldn't know if if the Spirit hadn't inspired him to reveal those things. Sometimes it's really hard to talk about yourself or to reveal something about yourself in, um, in any kind of an environment because we so want to push people toward the Lord and focus on the Lord and bring attention to the Lord. But the Spirit of God can touch our lives and cause us to bring something out of our own relationship and what it is that He's done in our lives and what it is that makes our life different or the ministry that God has called us to fruitful. And Paul did that in these autobiographical statements. If I was a biographer, I'm certainly no biographer, 
and I love to read them. But if I was a biographer and I was going to write a biography on you or anybody, I'm at the all I can work on is unless you show me what's inside of your heart, unless you reveal yourself to me by autobiographical statement. Autobiography is a biography that's written by the person that the biography is about. So I could put a cobble of biography together by talking to your friends, talking to your family, talking to your neighbors, uh, studying your life for a little while, who else has written about you, that kind of thing. But nothing approaches where someone from their own heart sits down to write or opens up their heart to us and shows us a little bit about what makes them tick. And that's what the Apostle Paul does here. And he gives us this priceless insight into his own ministry life and the ministry perspective that he had and that he maintained in his life in order to one day hear those words from the Lord, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. And he wanted to hear that concerning his service. And these verses really give us a glimpse at what made the Apostle Paul tick, at what went on in his mind as he endured such hardship in order to remain faithful to the Lord. I mean, you read the book of Acts and read the epistles, and it's, it's almost uh, it's jaw-dropping what he endured to be faithful to God's call upon his life. All compacted into one life. You could look at all that he went through, all that he endured, and think to yourself, if, t- if that were spread out over ten lives, I'd be left in awe. But here it is concentrated in a single life. And so what made him tick? What made him stay faithful through all of it? What is it that causes a man to sing praises to God in the in a prison in the depth of, of Philippi? And here he is preaching the gospel in that city of Philippi. And as he's preaching the gospel, he ends up being unjustly arrested beaten to a pulp, and his back lashed open until it's just raw. They put him in stocks in the middle of the prison, the very center of the prison, the heart of it, the stinking part of the prison. And at midnight, what does he do? He sings praises to God. Now, I want to know something about that man. I want to know what's going on between a man like that and God that allows a person not to slip down into some kind of a massive pity party or silences and says, God, if that's the way you take care of your servants, then just count me out. In fact, not only does he not go there, but he is all the way over here. What causes a man to go to the city of Lystra, preach the gospel, the opposition so great against him in doing so that they drag him outside of the city, stone him to death, leave him outside the city as dead? They thought he was dead. And then when he regains consciousness, he gets back up on his feet, dusts himself off, and goes back into the city rather than buying a ticket for a Greyhound bus in the opposite direction. And this is what Paul did over and over and over again. You say, what is going on between a man and God that produces that kind of faithfulness and that kind of Christian service? 
Encapsulating his Christian service, Paul wrote to these same Corinthians, but in the second letter, he said of his detractors, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers? I speak as a fool. I am more, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I've been in the deep, just holding on to wood to stay alive for a day and a night in the sea. In journeys often in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weak weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst and fastings often, in cold and nakedness, beside all the other things that come upon me daily, my deep concern for the church. And I ask myself, what keeps a man faithful through that? And they're not just words on the page. A brother that we are one day going to be in heaven with for eternity, he experienced all of that and even more, and yet he remained faithful to the Lord. And when a servant like that opens his mouth, he's got my attention, 100%. When Paul came to Corinth on his second missionary journey in order to establish a church there, that wasn't an easy task. Corinth was a tough place to start a church. And, and yet God birthed a church in the city of Corinth, such a pagan, sin-filled, idolatrous city. And God established a church in that city. And Paul labored day and night, we know, and, and at great personal expense to himself in order that these Christians might, number one, hear the gospel and become a Christian, but then, number two, grow in their per personal relationship with the Lord. And the Apostle Paul invested 18 months of his precious life in serving the Lord in that particular environment. And yet, the Bible tells us, though he had been used by God to birth that church in Corinth, and though he had served those people so sacrificially, I mean indescribably sacrificially, overall the Apostle Paul was underappreciated in Corinth. In fact, it wouldn't be saying too much to say that he was unappreciated by the believers there as a whole. And there were people in the church at Corinth that loved Paul, but many others were his detractors, and they were a constant source of grief to him. And so when he writes to them, the letter is, is hard, it's direct, it's clear, it's uh, unemotional, it is what it needs to be to them. But when you read First and Second, or certainly First Corinthians, and, and later in Second Corinthians, it doesn't have the flow. There isn't the freedom that he feels to expose his heart as he does with the church at Corinth, where he shares his joys and his desires and his hopes and his plans and the, the kind of letter that you write to friends, the kind of 
letter that you write to people that you know care about you and that you care about. That whole flavor that marks the letter to the Philippians doesn't have any place in, in the letters to the, to the Corinthians because in both of these letters he's forced to constantly defend himself to them. And these people who ought to have been, again, unspeakably grateful to him and his service to them. They ought to have been a great encouragement and comfort to Paul. They were not. In the first line of 1 Corinthians, here the Apostle Paul, God used him to birth the church. He was their spiritual father. He was their pastor. And yet his first line in his opening letter, he has to defend his apostleship to these people. And then in chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, as he's closing the whole book down, in what I think is one of the saddest and most pathetic, if not the saddest and most pathetic verse in all of the Bible, having to do with ministry, the Apostle Paul wrote to them, and he said, I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. Not words on a page. But that's how this church treated the Apostle Paul. And it's how that church made him feel. It seems as if they never appreciated his gifting or his service. And of course today we esteem Paul for his work's sake so highly that it's hard for us to believe that he could be so maltreated or would be maltreated by any congregation in the whole wide world, that he'd be unappreciated by a body of believers. But it happened at Corinth. And it wasn't just true at Corinth. At the end of his life, he stood virtually alone when he was about to be martyred for his faith and faithfulness to his service to the Lord except for his Savior. You would think that when the Apostle Paul was going to have his head chopped off, executed, persecuted for being faithful to the Lord, that when the word went out in the Roman Empire that people would have begun to trickle in from cities all over the Roman Empire, men and women who owed their knowledge of the gospel and their salvation in terms of hearing about the way to be saved. The Apostle Paul is in this place. This is Apostle Paul is going to be martyred. The Apostle Paul is in such a fix. I will not allow the Apostle Paul to die alone. And you would have thought that by the hundreds and the thousands and the tens of thousands, they would have flowed there for the Apostle Paul not to die alone. And yet he dies alone, virtually alone, except for the Lord. And he spoke to Timothy of it, and he said concerning the end of his life, he said, at my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. I pray, God, that it not be held to their charge. And notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. And while at Corinth, the Apostle Paul was serving the Lord in a situation in which he was unappreciated. I am not talking about a local situation in this sermon, by the way. Certainly not talking about this church. 
But I want to talk about this whole area of being faithful to God's call upon our lives, even when we find ourselves in an environment, a ministry environment, or an area of Christian service in which that service is completely unappreciated, serving the Lord in thankless environments. In verse 3, Paul tells us that in Corinth, rather than appreciating uh, Paul, they were constantly judging him. And what that judgment was, was that word judge there, it means to examine or it means to scrutinize. They weren't examining him or scrutinizing him in order to find something good about him. But they were trying to find fault. They were trying to find a reason to condemn him. We would say they were critical of him, a person with a critical spirit. And so the idea wasn't that they watched his life and they listened to his teaching and they came to fair conclusions about him on the basis of his life and on the basis of his teaching. That's fair. We ought to be free to do that. And in fact, more than be free to do that, we ought to do that. But what they were doing was they had a constant attitude toward him that was judgmental. Instead of seeing all the good things that he was doing, they were constantly putting him on trial in their hearts to find some kind of a fault. I remember, and this kind of thing happens in every kind of ministry that a person might be in. It certainly happens very often related to pastoring. I remember uh, reading a, a pastor, many of you would know his name, he's long, long ago gone with the Lord, but he talked, made mention of the fact that, um, that a good portion of his congregation, when they would go home for lunch, uh, what they ate most at lunch was not their lunch but roast pastor. As they just kind of would go over this or go over that and scrutinize him and barbecue him and all that kind of thing. And that's what was happening with the Apostle Paul in Corinth. They, want, they looked for fault. They wanted to find fault. They wanted to reject him. They wanted to condemn him. Many didn't like him just because they didn't want to like him. First and Second Corinthians reveal some of the reasons that these Christians at Corinth were judging Paul. Some of them didn't like his teaching. It seemed to be too simple. It was too basic. They were used to the great minds and the great intellects of Corinth and the Grecian culture showing off every single time people opened their mouth. And here was the Apostle Paul declaring simple truth about God to people in a way that they could understand. And rather than appreciating that, they looked at it as, as a fault within, within his life. And so he lacked these great intellectual displays and and they held it against him. Some of them didn't like the fact that he didn't have a, 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 his non-flashy style, so his lack of oratory skills that were so admired there in Corinth. Paul addressed these critics in 2 Corinthians, and he, where he said of what they were saying of him, for his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak. I mean, he doesn't command the platform the way that other people do. And his speech is contemptible. He has no gift for oratory. Yeah, he's a content guy, but you can fall asleep with all that content. I mean, he, he doesn't know how to hold a room this way, and he, he, he doesn't have these great public speaking uh, skills. The same kind of thing goes on today where you have pastors with a great 
gift to teach the Word of God with depth and with simplicity and with clarity, and yet they're being rejected for not being charismatic enough. I have never, I've been a pastor for 28 years. And 28 years ago, it was enough for a pastor to be able to teach the Bible, make it simple, make it clear, help us understand what it, how it applies to our life and what it has to do with our love relationship with the Lord and then to love people and people would be satisfied. But that day is gone. It's receding. And I've never heard in the last few years so many, many pastors, old and young, who are being dismissed and replaced because simple Bible teaching isn't enough anymore or speaking clearly and being a voice for God. The desire for pizzazz and the need to put on, you know, P.T. Barnum and Bailey Circus. Every service has to be like that. The sound has to be like this. It's all choreographed down to the five-second thing. The whole thing's got to be, you know, boom and bust and go and then everything. The light show, the whole everything like this. I mean, the building's got to be paid for. We've got to get a crowd in here to take care of these things. And the whole model that comes right out of Corinth and carnality and they're showing these people the door in order to bring in who knows what who will die trying to give them what they're wanting because God won't have any part in it. You're either going to be a preacher or you're going to be a promoter. You're either going to be a prophet or a promoter. You're not going to be both. And today in the culture that we live in, the prophet is lightly esteemed. Not among everyone, because the voice of the prophet is understood by those who understand the voice of the prophet and recognize it. And I'm not talking about myself. But today the promoter, the promoter, that's the person that everybody's looking for. And what they didn't understand at Corinth was that Paul had personality times ten. He had charisma times ten. Paul could take over any room that he walked into. Paul had an intellect that was as great as any man in human history. Even in secular sources, they esteem him to be one of the greatest minds. We're not even talking about Christians assessing him. The unsaved world saying one of the greatest, ten greatest minds in the history of the world. And he could have showed that off every time he opened up his mouth. But when he left Corinth after 18 months, he would have never been sure whether that church was built upon his intellect or his charisma or was built upon the things of the Spirit and the Word of God. And he said, when I leave in 18 months, I want to know it was a work of the Holy Spirit and it will be something that lasted. And so he held back all of those things so people would be forced to establish a relationship with God rather than a relationship upon Him, which at Corinth they would have formed a line to be able to build a relationship upon Him. Some of them didn't like the fact that He wouldn't 
let them grow comfortable in their sin and in their carnality. I can imagine how some sermons went over at the church in Corinth and the Apostle Paul. You got these people, carnal as can be, on their way to heaven. No doubt about it, but so fleshly and so carnal. And Paul's just going to tell them what God says about stuff. This must have been pretty interesting to be in the middle of it times. And a carnal Christian will hold it against a man like Paul who's going to be faithful to speak God's voice. I remember years ago hearing about an old story about a new pastor that had shown up at church. He was a new hire. So he preached his first sermon. Wow! Everybody loved it. What a great sermon. That was a little exhortive, but a great sermon. Next Sunday he comes back, teaches the same sermon. Wow. Still very good, but not as exciting as it was the first week. But we'll bite our tongue. He comes the third week, preaches the same sermon again. This time, before he can get off of the platform, the elders and the deacons come to him and speak to him about what in the world is he doing. And he said, as soon as this congregation obeys what I told them in this sermon, then we'll move on to the next sermon. (laughs) There's a little bit of the Apostle Paul in that. He was not going to have people's blood on his hands or on his head by failing to tell them not only how to be saved, but what is required one day to hear that well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. Other people just didn't like Paul, and that's just the way that it is in ministry. Not everyone is going to like you. And no matter what he did, they just weren't going to like him. They didn't want to like him. They liked Apollos. They wanted the eloquence. They liked an exhorter like Peter. They wanted anybody to be the leader there other than than this methodical teacher that they had who wasn't going to let them think that they were spiritual on the basis of how much they knew rather than upon how much of God's Word that they knew and then practiced and obeyed. And I want us to notice seven things in our text. And to give some of you hope, let me add the word briefly. I want to briefly notice seven things in our text that the Apostle Paul reveals as having helped him maintain perspective in his that ministry environment of Corinth. And what helped him remain faithful to the Lord in what was a spiritually miserable environment in many ways for a person to minister in, in that thankless, critical setting of Corinth. We notice in verse 3, first, that he considered a very small thing that he should be judged by others. And that phrase, a very small thing, literally it means uh, the very smallest thing. And what Paul was telling the church at Corinth was that he, he was declaring that their personal opinion of him amounted to nothing. He's not being arrogant, and he's not being proud in all of this, in stating that to them. No one's 
personal opinion of him mattered at all in comparison to what God's opinion of him was. And he knew God had called him to that church in Corinth. But he didn't let those with a judgmental, critical spirit get him down, and he didn't give it undue importance or let it dominate him. And that is so hard not to allow to happen to us. There are people who have a critical spirit and attitude, and they can get us down in our service to the Lord, whatever that service might be. And so what people with a critical spirit thought of him, he kept it a small thing in his heart and his mind, and so should we. He didn't give the opinion of that kind of people undue weight. And a person must not let the unjust criticisms of others drive us out of where God has called us to serve him. Carnal Christians are baby Christians. They never grow out of babyhood. One of the things about having a baby is that you've got to change their diaper. And you change their diaper, and you change their diaper, and you change their diaper, and you change their diaper. And why do you change their diaper without too much grudging of it? Because you change babies' diapers. And you know, well, I'm, I'm not going to change this baby's diaper forever. Pretty soon we'll get him potty trained and we'll be on our way as it relates to this. The same thing as it relates to a carnal Christian, spiritually speaking. We don't change their diapers, so to speak, but one of the marks of the fact that they're still wearing diapers is that they come into spiritual environments and all they can see is what's wrong. This is wrong, and that's wrong, and this is wrong, and that's wrong, and how come, and why, and if it were in all this whole thing. They can come into churches like this. They can come into any kind of Christian gathering, and to save their life, all they can see or will walk away with and talk about it was what was wrong with the evening or the day. A mountain of effort will have been behind blessing everyone that entered into the room, including them. They won't see one single bit of it. All they'll see is what's wrong. And you get a, 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 a an immature Christian or a baby Christian who is a brand new Christian, and the first consciousness they have in their immaturity is what's wrong with something. And so they're in a place where how come you do this, and this is wrong, and that is wrong, and how come, and all the things that are wrong, and you listen to it, and you listen to it, and you listen to it, and you pat them on the back, and you say, they're there, keep going, and you realize they're just a baby Christian, their first consciousness is what is wrong, they think they're mature because they can point out everything that's wrong in every place that they go, and they don't realize yet that maturity is being able to notice what is wrong with something and then becoming a part of the solution. And the knowledge that I might notice something being wrong because God is making me aware of it because I'm then to begin to pray about that or I'm a part of God's solution for changing that in that church or in that whatever it might, might be that's related to the name of the Lord. 
But when a person stays there, I mean, you humor people when they're brand new Christians in the early months and all, but when a person stays there for months and years, these are the people that kill people in ministry. Statistics, I mean, they've done the studies on it. The average pastor, the average pastor in the United States of America changes churches about two years. They pastor for two years, move on someplace else, and so forth and so forth and so forth. That's kind of the pattern for whatever reason. I don't know why the, the reasons are and all of that. But they say that the average pastor, sometimes you leave because the Holy Spirit wants you to leave. It's all God-ordained. But talking about leaving a church under unpleasant circumstances, the average pastor, it is said, leaves a church over seven people. Over seven people like this in the congregation. He's pastoring a congregation of a hundred. Ninety-three people can't wait to get to church on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, whatever the meetings are. They love the church. They love what God is doing. That seven, though, will drive them out. 193 of the 200 love the church. That seven will drive them out. 993 Love the church out of a thousand. That seven will still drive him out. That's the power that this kind of thing can have against our longevity in service. And so the importance of the Apostle Paul says here, and it relates to any service, whether you're feeding the homeless or whatever it might be, though, but, but the whole idea here is, is the, it, with this particular group that is always going to be a part of any place any of us serve is to recognize that the power of this group, but not to allow them to have an undue weight or influence in our lives, or they will drive us out. It doesn't mean we don't listen to people, say things to us that are sometimes hard to hear. Anybody can come up to me and say anything. You know, to say it nice. I mean, I'm not going to punch you or something if you don't say it nice. It just makes it easier to talk with you. But I have lots of blind spots. I listen to what anybody has to say to me, whether it's write it in a letter or they want to talk with me or whatever. Have you ever considered this or you've ever thought about that or that? I want, this is a body, this is a family, this is a church where a lot of people need to feel welcome and comfortable and lots of tastes and different things. So I'm going to... I, not only will I listen to what anybody, anybody and everybody has to say, but I will then take it to the Lord in prayer. But it, that's, it's not talking about that kind of person. This person that Paul is dealing with can never, ever be uh, satisfied. And God had called Paul to Corinth. God had told him to stay there because there were many people to be reached in Corinth. And that's what he was going to do no matter what the opinion of some of them was related to that. And Paul was in essence, in essence saying, as long as I know that I'm pleasing him that sent me, I'm not greatly concerned with the fact that I displease you. And so Paul didn't give judgmental opinions of him undue weight, and it's important that we don't do so either.
And then second, in verses 3 and 4, we notice that he refused even to judge himself. As dangerous and as destructive as that group of carnal Christians can be to a person's longevity and ministry in an attack from the outside, there's another completely different personality that will never quit their service to the Lord on the basis of the unjust criticisms of other people. Their weakness is self-condemnation. Their weakness is self-assessment, self-judgment that is harder and stricter than God's judgment and assessment of them. And this can be as dangerous and as destructive as the other if we give undue weight to what we think about ourselves and the effectiveness of our ministries. And for some of us, we are our own worst enemy in Christian service. And so, like Paul, we have to learn not to judge ourselves or less or else we will produce so much discouragement within ourselves that the fruitfulness and the longevity of our service to the Lord will be threatened and even destroyed. We are each of us called to examine ourselves. Paul wrote and he said, for we should judge, if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. We are to examine ourselves for sin and as it relates to holiness. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Here he's talking about our own inability to come to an accurate opinion about the effectiveness of our ministries and our service. And here's the Apostle Paul saying that even he doesn't have the ability to properly evaluate his own effectiveness. No Bible teacher will use that as an example. Can ever say, well, that was a great teaching when something was effortless on one hand, and then the next time the Bible study is, it's like running a marathon through mud, and you walk away and you go, what was that? That was terrible. You don't know that. You don't know that. Sometimes the thing that we think is just the greatest thing in the world, and that was such a wow moment and all, people will have forgotten it before they even get to Costco. And the one that you just thought was nothing, God comes alongside it and says, I'm going to make much of that, however you feel. And the truth that was declared will reside in scores of hearts until the day that they go to be with the Lord. We don't have the ability to properly judge because we don't know what God is adding to our service And so Paul says, who can figure it out? He couldn't figure it out. And so he gives as little weight to his own natural opinions and criticisms of himself as he did to the natural and fleshly opinions made by others. It wasn't that he was was arrogant or unteachable. He just recognized that he was as capable of misjudging himself as fully as others might be. We can condemn ourselves right out of the ministry Every single one of us. And then number three, notice in verses four and five that he entrusted all judgment to the Lord. Why would we entrust all judgment to the Lord? Because only the Lord knows everything, the full story. All of the heart, 
issues that are involved, all of the motives of why we do what we do, all those things are going to be brought out one day as we spoke last week concerning the Bema Seat. All of the dark things will be brought out, Paul said. The envy and the jealousy and the pride and the carnality of all the people that were being critical of Paul there at Corinth. One day it was all going to be exposed that those were the reasons they didn't like Paul rather than all of the noble and lofty kind of reasons that they were given for rejecting Paul. Paul said it will all come out in the wash one day. It will all come out into the open. And he just was going to leave it with the Lord and trusted all judgment to the Lord. I remember when I was a new Christian, I heard a statement. I've heard it many, many times since. But you know how it is where sometimes the first time you hear something, it locks. And I remember the very the pastor in the whole environment when the statement was made. And the pastor said, uh, if you take care of your character, God will take care of your reputation. And that's what Paul's saying here. The recognition. If he just was faithful to what God had called him to do and and, and can continue in that, then God would take care of his reputation at the Bema seat of Christ or the reward seat of Christ. Just to leave it with the Lord. God got us up into ministry. God will keep us up. And we can entrust all judgment to the Lord. We don't have to run around uh, trying to uh, defend ourselves and, uh, and justify ourselves. Um, the... Um, if the devil identifies us in our service to the Lord as someone who feels compelled to put out every single fire of, of every lie or everything that's being said about us, then the devil will look and say, all right, I know, I know the device I will use to keep them busy for the rest of their life. And all he'll do is start fires and we will spend our three score and ten putting out those fires and setting people straight and we'll never get to God's ministry unless there's a place where we say, Lord, I commit all judgment to you. You will make it all clear one day. I'm going to stay busy about your business. And then fourth in verse 1, he reminded himself that he was a servant and that he needed to be a servant where God had placed him. And the word servants that's used there in verse 1, it's the word under rower in the original language. And on those ancient ships, those Roman ships, they would have, on the big ships, they would have a set of oarsmen on the upper deck. And then below the deck, they would have a second set of oarsmen. And so if you ever see uh, movies or a show or a documentary that deals with that era and they recreate those ships, you'll see the two rows of oars. Maybe some of you remember in Ben-Hur, Charlton Heston, was a slave, and, they, and slaves were the one who rode. It wasn't like they went down to the gym and said, hey, by the way, you're just kind of wasting time here. You've got a big ship out there you can get a great workout on too. These were slaves that they put on the ship. Charlton Heston was a slave in, at that point of the movie, and he is a rower. He's an oarsman on that. And as bad as it was, I mean, he's chained it's, uh, and all, and he's, and he's uh, very strenuous, and there's the guy with the whip, and they're beating the beat of the drum because they're heading into battle, or they're having to outrun something and all. But as bad as Charlton Heston's place, there was a worse place on the ship, and that was to be on the lower deck in that compartment being an oarsman, an under rower, 
Even a Greyhound bus has a toilet on it. But people can go and use the restroom. When you're chained, it's not like what we do with the children's church and somebody really has to go to the bathroom. We have an aid and the whole, you know, we've got the whole mechanism for how everything works and, and, and all. On there, you're chained. We're trying to ramrod another ship. We're in the middle of the battle. What goes to the under deck goes to the under deck. It's just the way that it is. A stinky, terrible, hard, vile environment. And what Paul was saying, that my ministry in Corinth here, I am an under-rower. This is one tough place, unpleasant place to serve the Lord. But he did not feel that he was too good for that and was willing to be an under-rower and to be faithful to the Lord in whatever God had called him uh, to, to do. And so in Paul's day, to take the position of an under-rower was to take the lowest position of all. And Paul, again, saying as a servant, he didn't feel that he was too good or above any circumstance that God ever placed him in. And that is an incredible protection against self-pity. And everyone can be prone to self-pity in our service to the Lord. So I'm better than this. I've paid my dues. I don't have to put up with this. I don't need the aggravation. I quit. Paul was an under-rower in Corinth, and when he looked at that, he said, My life has been paid for in the blood of Jesus Christ. My life doesn't belong to me anymore. I'd have thrown my life away and wasted it a thousand different ways and ended up in eternal judgment. But God saved me from that. And wherever and however he wants to spend my life, I will gladly spend it there. And that's the heart of an under-rower. And it keeps us from that self-pity. And, of course, the greatest test, of course, for how well we're doing on being an under-rower is how we react when someone treats us like an under-rower. Listen, God can treat me that way, but you can't treat me that way. So, oh, all right, you grown. you got a little ways to go yet. And then fifth in verse 1, I noticed that Paul considered himself to be a steward, and as a steward, he committed himself to be faithful to where God had placed him as a steward of the mysteries of God. And a steward in those days is basically a slave that was appointed to the oversight of an owner's uh, property. There were 6,000 slaves in the Roman Empire. Not all of them were doing back-breaking agricultural work or breaking up stones or building monuments to Rome's greatness. Many slaves were doctors, where they, you would be part of a wealthy family. Here's the school over here, and this child seems to show some kind of an aptitude toward medicine or toward law or whatever it might be. That child would be purchased and then raised to become the family doctor or to become the lawyer for the whole uh, business empire of the family. 
And so a steward was someone who had administrative skills and abilities, and they would be given an oversight of what was most valuable to the owner and what is the most valuable thing that the owner, that God, we are his servants, that he has, that he's entrusted to us, and that is the mystery of God, the gospel, to preach the gospel. And so the Apostle Paul, the truth of this new covenant, he considered it a stewardship The Lord had commanded it to be taken into all the whole world, and he was going to be faithful uh, to do that. And, of course, the most important characteristic in a steward was and is faithfulness. They didn't have to be talented. They didn't have to do, like, magic tricks or anything like that. They didn't have to pull a rabbit out of their hat. They didn't have to be especially articulate or anything like that, but they did have to be faithful. That was required, and Paul stayed faithful in that difficult place in Corinth out of a faithfulness to God. God had called him there for eternal purposes, and he needed to stay there, and to Paul's credit, he did. And really, all ministry will ultimately come down to faithfulness. I don't care what ministry God has called us to, there will come a place, and he will make sure that it happens where we will one day say to him, Lord, I would never do what you've called me to do for myself. You've burned off the motive of selfishness. It's gone. I would quit if that was my motive. I would not do what you have called me to do for other people and their accolades. I will do what you have called me to do to be faithful to you. And when a servant jumps from those lower motivations up into this higher motivation, now you have a faithful steward. And that's what how the Apostle Paul saw things. He realized that as difficult as Corinth was, that God had called him to serve there, and as miserable as the circumstances were in many respects, he would continue to do it. Quitting was not an option that God had left upon the table. And all of us, at some time or another, will be tempted to quit what God has called us to. And it will be faithfulness that will keep us in the saddle long enough to one day hear that well done. And then sixth, in verse 5, he stayed conscious of the Lord's return. He said, until the Lord comes. Paul was the greatest missionary in the history of the world, human missionary in the history of the world. And as you read all through his letters, you read over and over again his mention of heaven. Oh, he thought about heaven all of the time he was thinking about heaven. And I think it's one of the greatest things that happens in Christian service. All of this life is a preparation for heaven. All of that is wood, hay, and stubble. It's going to burn. All that's going to outlive this world is going to be the Word of God, the souls of men, and the service that we have done unto the Lord and will be rewarded for one day. The rest of it is just nonsense in in comparison. And when a person serves the Lord the way that Paul did and, and faithfully and at the kind of sacrifice he did, it will always make a person eager for heaven. If a person is not eager for heaven yet, I think it's a good thing to pull back and look and say, where am I serving sacrificially? 
where my life is being given away, where my life is in contact with the pain of this world, the need of this world, and the hopelessness of this world apart from Christ and all. When a person gets into that place and serves in that place, then pays the price you're going to pay in that place, then you think about heaven a lot. And I don't like the fact that there's this trend today where when I was a, became a Christian 30 years ago or so, we couldn't wait for the Lord's return. All we thought about was heaven and He's coming back. And yes, we served the Lord and we had the things to do, but we thought about heaven a lot. And now it's dismissed. It's hardly discussed. <clears throat> and not by oversight and not by accident. By design in many cases. We don't want people thinking about heaven. We want people thinking about right now, their life right now, the needs of the church right now, the offering right now, the right now, the right now, the right now. Again, all of this whole Corinthian nonsense come into the church. We'll lose control of them if we have them seeing what's happening right now in the light of eternity and what really matters. They might end up getting a relationship with God that's deep and significant and no longer listen to our voices anymore. And I don't like the fact that that's being done deliberately today. It means the world to me to know that the Lord could come back today before this service is over, which is very soon, by the way, for those of you who want to know. <laughs> Paul thought about heaven. Thought about heaven a lot, and he stayed conscious of the Lord's return. And finally, verse 5, he was confident that at the end of this kind of life was the greatest reward a person could ever receive, and that's to have the praise of God. The praise of men is wonderful. The encouragement of men is wonderful. But it comes, it goes, it's fickle, it's so many things, it's halting, it's here one day, it's not the next day, it's all. But the praise of God to one day hear Jesus say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. And Paul had in his mind, and it dominated his thinking and his priorities and his life, that he would one day see Jesus, look him in the eye, and those were the words that he wanted to hear from Jesus. And yet for Paul to one day hear those words from the Lord meant that a long period of his life would be spent in one of the most difficult circumstances a person can find themselves in. And I think that perhaps in some ways every bit as hard on the inside, on the heart, as stoning is to the outer body. A time when he was called to be faithful to the Lord in an environment that was devoid of any appreciation. And perhaps like Paul, the Lord has entrusted that kind of an experience to you. And the raising of that child where every single day at this point it is a fight to raise him or her in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Or maybe in that marriage or being faithful to God at that school or in that workplace or in that church or wherever it might be. And maybe God has entrusted that kind of an experience to you. It's all one-sided. You do all of the giving. They do all of the taking. 
completely ungrateful. But remember the seven things that help the Apostle Paul maintain perspective and remain faithful in that very setting himself. Don't let the unjust criticism of others get you down. Don't give what they say undue weight considered a very small thing compared to what God thinks of you. Don't judge yourself. You know as little as they do. And trust all judgment concerning your effectiveness to the Lord. Remain a servant. You're an under rower. You're not too good for where God has placed you to do what you are doing. Be careful of self-pity. Stay faithful in that situation. Number six, there's praise coming your way one day that will make you forget all about its absence in this life. And finally, remember that that praise giver may come today and we want to be found faithful when that happens. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, once we're saved, and that great issue is taken care of, now the well done is everything. The well done is all that really matters. And we pray for one another, Lord, at Calvary Chapel of Modesto. And we pray that you continue to the work of your Holy Spirit until every single one of us that attends this church understands the calling and the gifting upon our lives and we are engaged in that place, faithfully engaged in that place for the expansion of your kingdom, Lord. That we wouldn't become spectators in all of this but be in the midst of the work so that one day, Lord, we could hear that, Jesus, from your lips, that well done, thou good and faithful servant. And we thank you for this passage that reminds us of the importance of this. But then, Lord, once we find ourselves in that place, protects us in that calling. And we pray, Lord, that you would use these five verses and this time in your word to bring perspective to each and every one of your servants, Lord, that hears it today. And then, Lord, that you would use these verses to protect us in our calling, Lord, however thankless or however one-sided the environment or the relationship might be or how unappreciated we are. Lord, all of that will be gone when we hear that well done. Use this passage, Lord, to nurture and to protect your call upon each one of our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.